Good evening, everyone. Good to see you. We'll start on time and uh, uh, give everybody who comes at their usual time a bit of a, a surprise. Um, welcome, if you're visiting here. My name's John. I'm one of the elders here, and I'll be leading the service. Get these words from Scripture, which invite us to worship. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summonses the earth. From the rising of the sun to its setting, gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Let's stand and sing to his praise and glory the hymn 10,000 Reasons. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Oh 
Please be seated. Let's pray together. Let's pray. We thank you for your name, for it is great. And you have revealed to us through your word, your name, your being, your very self. And we are baptized into that name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are united to you in Christ. And we are loved and cared for by you. And so we draw near to bless you from the depths of our being. We lay aside our guilty conscience by saying sorry and looking at the cross where our sins are dealt with, our guilt is dealt with, the barriers between you and us are taken away, and there is bold access and approach in the name of Jesus by the Spirit. And so we come to you. We thank you for our Lord Jesus, the wisdom of God, he who delighted in the fear of God and therefore was the wisest one who ever walked and lived, who understands and understood all sayings and knowledge, all proverbs and sayings, in fact, taught so wonderfully well in the simplest of words with the deepest and profoundest thoughts and meaning. And in his name we come to you. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're reading through the um, second book of Kings. And we're in the midst of Goodness me, a whole pile of kings not lasting very long. It's page 386, 2 Kings 15. I was wondering last week what, what it meant and what Paul was meaning when he said that we bore um, fruit for death. If, if you want an example of it, just look at the history of the kings here. Lots of fruit being born for death started off by... Um, Jeroboam, son of Nebat. We're going to read from verse um, 13 to 22. Shalom, son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of Isaiah, king of Judah, and he reigned in Samaria for one month. Then Menachem, son of Gadai, went from Tirzah up to Samaria. He attacked Shalom, son of Jabesh, in Samaria, assassinated him, and succeeded him as king. The other events of Shalom's reign and the conspiracy he led are written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel. At that time, Menachem, starting out from Terzah, attacked Tifsah and everyone in the city and its vicinity because they refused to open their gates. He sacked Tifsah and ripped open all the pregnant women. In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menachem, son of Gade, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria for ten years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, 
During his entire reign, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. Then Pul, king of Assyria, invaded the land, and Menachem gave him a thousand talents of silver to gain his support and strengthen his own hold on the kingdom. Menachem exacted this money from Israel. Every wealthy man had to contribute 50 shekels of silver to be given to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria withdrew and stayed in the land no longer. As for the other events of Menachem's reign, all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Menachem rested with his fathers, and Pekahiah, his son, succeeded him as king. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, we'll take the notices now. Um, is communion next Sunday morning? Um, it seems every time it goes up for the evening announcement, it actually is meant to be in the morning. Um, so given that there's only supposed to be four morning ones, we should get it right uh, most of the time in the year because we have... But uh, there we go. So if you're thinking of becoming a member, speak to um, David or myself at the end of the service and uh, we'll invite you to come and meet with the session, which will meet um, at 10.30 on Sunday morning and probably in the office since the uh, other places might be full, but we'll see. Okay. Um, I think that's all. Just pay attention to the, the notices as they scroll through um, as they go around. If you haven't collected your record, um, copies of this month's and, well, it's a July-August copy are available for you if you're a contributor. If you haven't um, paid up but would like a copy, then you can pay at the desk. And all previous ones are now available for free before we recycle them. So make, make, uh, make use of that. Okay, these are all on our notices. Let's uh, join together in prayer again. Let's pray. What a mixture of need is represented here, Heavenly Father. You read and understand the secrets of our hearts. You know those who smile on the outside from a broken heart on the inside. You know those who pretend to be good when they are full of evil and wickedness. You know those who see only their own wickedness when they believe in the Lord Jesus and are united to him and are in him and therefore have no condemnation. You know the troubles and afflictions and stresses that we bring to you. And yet, as mixed as we all are from different backgrounds, ages and stages, you unite us together in Christ and you speak personally and particularly to each one of us here. How can any human being ever think to try and do that? No one of us could. But you, by your spirit, through your servants, you speak to us and change us. And we're glad for that. We pray, Heavenly Father, for um, this congregation, for those who teach your word Sunday by Sunday, for the burdens that they carry uh, spiritually and the weight that that is on their conscience and on their souls and we would share the burdens in prayer with them that you would give them light and a lift 
um, in their hard work of labor in preaching the word. We pray for those who exercise care and oversight and pray that you will give them diligence, the eager um, desire to reach out to those in, for whom they're responsible and the um, insight and wisdom to know how to care. For we know that one child in a family will respond to a harsh word, whereas another child in the same family would do the total opposite and a kind word. And it's wisdom, the wisdom of a parent that knows the difference to encourage and bring on and discipline. And likewise, our Heavenly Father, you know what's needed for each one of us to bring us on to the likeness of Christ and to share in your holiness. And so we pray for wisdom as we deal with one another that we will be able to reprove when reproof is needed, but build up when building up is needed, to strengthen, to help, to speak and to share. Will you give us that gift? And tonight especially we want to pray for David and his family with thanksgiving for all that he means and all that he does for us and for you. And we pray that you will protect him, strengthen him, guide him, and empower him to do your will, to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand again and sing um, another old favor. We had another Wesley hymn this morning. We've got another one tonight. Rejoice, the Lord is King. Our Lord and King adore.
Gavin, Amy, and Hugh, I think. You're all coming up. It's our mission spot. Are you going to do this without Hugh? I was going to come. He's going to pray for you afterwards. Okay. okay. Gavin and Amy, you can, I'll leave it over to you guys. This is Hugh. Um, yeah, so to you who don't know, know us, um, my name is Gavin and this is my wife Amy and um, a few weeks ago we went on a trip to Burundi um, which is in the east coast of Africa and I really, really just want to say thank you for your support and for your prayers um, while we were there and just to tell you a couple of things about um, our, our time there. So on the, on the map here you see it's just um, inland a little bit from Tanzania and Kenya and just below the equator. Um, so. Um, yeah, so it's a very, very poor country. Um, the population is 10 million. Um, the land area is about two-thirds the size of Scotland. Um, and, um, yeah, the life expectancy is 57. Um, so, yeah, and um, the um, country have, has been through a few recent um, civil wars. So um, the, the country, obviously, is in a pretty desperate um, situation. Um, Operation World puts the population of Christian, or sorry, the percentage of Christians at 90%, um, although um, a lot of those, I think, are nominal Christians. Um, so a lot of people go to church there, and um, they are very willing to listen to, um, to the Christian message. Um, so how much, um, yeah, so um, the um, unemployment rates are very high in the cities. Um, the normal um, job is just cultivation, so it's cultivating the land and living off um, food that way. Um, so yeah, um, the language is Kurundi, and um, for the people that are educated, they speak French as well. Um, so, so yeah, we, the time that we were there, we spoke through a translator, and so we pop it on the next one there. Um, so the picture there is just um, where the picture from where we were staying from our accommodation, so it's a very picturesque country. Um, very mount- mountainous and um, lots of trees and I uh, don't know if you can tell in the pictures there but there's a lot of banana trees and um, fruit trees um, that um, are grown there so um, we're, we're treated to very beautiful sunsets, the sunsets just um, straight where we were looking in that direction so we're treated to very beautiful sunsets um, in the evenings um, so um, yeah very lovely place that we stayed um, the place that we stayed there was um, called Rutana um, which is quite a rural place, um, about three hours' drive um, from the capital city. And um, our clinic, um, we, we travelled from there every morning. Um, the roads are very bumpy, so the um, infrastructure is quite basic. And um, so it was quite a shock for him and I just to see all these, all these things as we um, travelled from different time to time to see the way the people lived um, our first time in Africa. Um, so, yeah, if you pop it on to the next one there. So that was the, the team of us that was there for two weeks. Um, so Amy and I are just on, the, on your left. Um, and Chris and Heather have um, been about um, ten times. Well, um, Heather's been about four times. And at the end of the line is Violet. Um, and she was, she's a nurse, and she was helping out with the dentistry team. That was her third um, time in Burundi. Um, so the building that you see behind us there is where Amy and I were doing our clinic. Um, so the, the charity that owns these buildings is um, REMA. Um, so REMA have built this, these clinics um, that run. Whenever we're not there, they run um, a maternity clinic. And um, they, they also help with um, children and adults with malaria. Um, so the, the healthcare is very basic, but they are very grateful for any, any care that they receive. And 
Um, so yeah, uh, that was um, that one. Um, so you pop it on the next one there. So in the mornings, um, we had the opportunity to share the gospel um, with the patients. Um, so the, the room that we were in was crammed full of people. Um, so you can see in the picture there, there's maybe 100 people in the room and very, very hot. Um, so, and no lights, so it's, it's quite dark. It's hard to see people's faces. Um, so, um, yeah, the, um, what struck me was how receptive the people were to hear, hear the gospel. Um, so they're, um, if you say um, good morning, they're, they're very, they're very um, welcoming and ready to listen to whatever you have to say. Um, so I can't imagine what it would be like if I um, went out to my waiting room in, uh, in Dundee and started to share the gospel, how, how the patients would respond. <laughs> but I would imagine it would be different from, from how it was there. Um, so, yeah, so while we were um, each morning, there were, there were a few people that um, responded to the gospel and said that they would like to be a Christian, so that was a great encouragement. Um, so, yeah, do you want to share a bit about the ITS? So each morning we uh, got up and it's about, we met for our Bible study at 6.30, and that was a really refreshing time just to start with God's Word, and we really enjoyed that. And then we had our breakfast and headed to Nambue, where we had the clinic, Nambui is about 40 minutes drive from where we stayed. Why didn't we stay in Nambui? Because there's no accommodation. It's so basic. The, um, the houses are very basic. There's no electricity, no, no plumbing. Um, however, Mission International have provided water to this village, so Mission International is known there, and they're so thankful for the work that they've done so far. So we had a really bumpy car journey to the clinic every morning. At the start, I was on like this thinking the car's going to hit the ground and well, that'll be us, flat tyre, we can't go any further. But we got there and back every day. And at the end of the week, we were, knew the car would do it and we weren't nervous. And then we had our um, meeting in the morning in the main clinic and everyone came together. And then after that, Gavin and I went to the building where we did our eye test and Chris, Heather and Violet stayed in that main building and had loads of patients there to look at teeth. So this is the room that we had for doing eye tests. We had brought equipment with us from Scotland. Our work helped us um, with some of the eye test material. We had the big box of lenses. We had glasses and some letter charts. We had to use the illiterate letter chart quite a lot. It's just symbols, and they point which direction the symbol's facing a lot. There's a lot of people who couldn't read or write. And really, the, the main complaints that we had was just reading, that was a big problem, Lawton couldn't read, even if they couldn't read it's you know, little things they can't see up close especially in the poor light because there's no electricity in their houses, just things like um, well they called it jiggers like getting little bugs out of their feet all this sort of thing just to help them with, uh, another claim was dry eyes, a lot of people so dusty and dry um, and hot so a lot of people have sore eyes and then there was a couple of cases that we are hoping will be seen by an ophthalmologist in uh, the start of September. It was a guy who's just 26 with really dense cataract and heart can hardly see. And then another girl who's in the last three months, her vision has just dropped dramatically and the front of her eye is completely clouded over. She won't recover her sight, but it's really just to make sure that nothing worse will happen and um, that she'll not have severe pain from her eye problem. So it was a limitation with what we could do, but we could do some things, so that was good. All the eye tests were carried out through translators. 
Their language they spoke was Corindi. So in that photograph, you can see the back of a translator. That was Jean Marie. He is a physics teacher by trade. But it was summer holiday, so he was there to translate for us. And he was really good. And he didn't just translate the words, he translated the culture as well, which was really important. Um, and then the other man who helped us translate was Ernest, and he would, works in the clinic full-time. Can we have the next picture? So the photograph on the left is the queue we had outside the building. People waited all day, and if they didn't get signed, they came back the next day. And it was a long walk for them, for most of them. Um, and then the lady on the right got a pair of glasses, which was great. They worked for her. They were all second-hand glasses, so they weren't perfect for each person, but they were better than nothing. Um, but each morning we came into the, the clinic and it was all covered in dust again. Every morning we had to start cleaning it before we could start. I don't know where the dust comes from, but it's dust everywhere. Um, what else? What's the next slide? Oh, yes, this is the, the dental team then. So Chris and Heather are in the middle. And then the man in white beside Heather, he is uh, Bosco. And then the guy in the very end on, on the right, that's Norbert. So Chris and Heather and some other people have been training Bosco and Norbert in teeth extractions. They are nurses at work in this clinic. They have been working there for a few years. And then just last year, they qualified and are able to extract teeth by themselves, which is a real big benefit to the people there. Um, it doesn't sound like a very important job, but it really is. There was a couple of people last year and this year who got teeth extracted unsafely and had huge infections in their mouth um, and last year one man died because of that so this is a huge achievement that they've managed to get these nurses trained in dentistry but you know they are they do everything the maternity clinics there and as you can imagine it's very busy the average number of children in each family is six so there's always children being born and Norbert on the end, I think one night there was four kids born and then he worked the next day doing teeth extractions. So he just worked so hard and they are a really good um, witness to the people in that community. And the clinic really is the, um, like the lifeblood of that place. There's so much happening around it and it gives them so much hope. Whenever I went into the building for the first time, I thought, oh my goodness, like it was so dirty and so dark and the smell was horrible and it was just not what you would imagine a clinic to be like but you just kind of got used to your, your expectations then completely changed and you saw how people treated this clinic they thought it was amazing and you start to think it's amazing too um, so then we on our uh, Sunday that we had we went to the church so this church was actually attended by a lot of the people we saw we, we recognized their faces this is the inside of the church, so they haven't got a floor yet, it's just ground. And um, we were given seats of honour. They always treat, I think they treat their guests very well. So the church was really full. Down the whole left-hand side was children. There's no children's church. On Saturday there is a Sunday school, well, Saturday school, where they learn about the Bible. But they sat through the whole service and were great. The service started at 9am and it ended at 2 but, the, but it went really quickly. Um, and we, whenever we arrived, there was all this singing and jo like joyful noise from the church. And that was to welcome us. Um, and then we came in and got our seats and um, we, we were sang lots of songs. And um, Chris gave a couple of talks, um, which were translated again. The, the church um, has got a, 
another building that they're they're trying to um, erect. There's a, there's there's walls on the minute, but then a roof, and that's just because the church keeps growing. So it's really encouraging. And then after that church, after the service, we were going to one of the members' house for lunch. So Heather had warned me to go to the toilet at the church before we got to the the next place because that toilet was worse. So I was like, oh right, that's fine. So. I went up to the hut and I got in, closed the door, and I thought, how long should I pretend that I've been in here because I'm not going? <laughs> and so I was straight back out. The flies and the smell was pretty bad. But apart from that, we were very blessed with plumbing and flushing toilets and things. So that was good. Um, and then I think the last picture we have is just of the kids. So our journey each day to the clinic, it was on a tarmac road with loads of potholes. And then we just turned off a dirt road to get to Nimbue. So from that dirt road onwards, we were just waving, waving, waving. People, kids came running to see us. The only car on the road, I think, the whole time. So they could hear the car coming and then they got to their driveway. Um, so they were a real joy. But it was quite sad in some ways because they had so little and their clothes were so like old and holes in them. And they, they probably have one meal a day, if that. So there's so much need in that area. Um, and Heather, she very wisely said what Jesus said, the prayer you always have with you. But the work the Mission International does gives them so much hope. And although we can't help everybody, we know that we're commanded to do what we can. So it was a real privilege to be out there. And it was a real blessing to us. And Gavin and I were very much an or normal people. We're pretty ordinary. But we have an extraordinary God who sustained us that whole time and made us able to do it. We have a very short video. This is the last day that Gavin and I were going in um, to the clinic and Violet. I should mention Chris and Heather are still out there. Um, so keep praying for them. They're back on, on Thursday and they're with Ivana, who is a member of this church, who's a dental student, and Sayi, who is Ivana's friend, who's not a Christian, but they're both dental students. So they're there at the minute. So this is our last day going to the clinic. Fantastic stuff. If, uh, if anybody's ever interested in uh, going out in a team uh, with us, whether you're a medic or whatever, then please come and, and speak to me about it. Um, but it, it may be that you just want to go and, and share the gospel with people, then please feel free to talk to us about that as well. We have another team going out to Haiti in a, a month's time and then another one going out to uh, Kenya and Ethiopia in October, November time as well. Um, just on that last little picture there, um, I remember walking into uh, the airport in Kigali in Rwanda and uh, the pastor, African pastor who was with me, um, there were just hundreds of people around the airport and he shouted, Hallelujah! <laughs> in the middle of the airport and everybody to a man shouted, Amen! <laughs> so it's just absolutely fantastic. Everywhere you go, you shout Hallelujah, somebody will shout Amen for you again, uh, which is fantastic. We're going to stand and sing um, part of, uh, excuse me, part of Psalm 66, in fact, all of Psalm 66, and the tune is St. Magnus, um, and we sing this unaccompanied. 96. Did I say 96?
I did, yeah, 96. I meant to say it. Oh, um, I've been warned, I forgot again to say about the offering. So your offering will be received as, the, uh, as we sing this psalm. And then Sinclair's going to come and preach after this. Oh, sing a new song to the turn in our Bibles to the Old Testament and to the book of Proverbs, and you'll find the passage on page 600 
and 35, 635. And we're going to read uh, again, as we did a few Sundays ago, Proverbs chapter 1 and verses 1 to 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now we're turning again this evening to these verses that constitute the prologue to the book of Proverbs. And uh, I have this slight fear, as happened with the prologue to John's gospel, that what was originally intended to be an introductory message to a series will in fact become a series all on its own. And uh, David did encourage me at the end last time to make this a series And I think I can promise you uh, now as time goes by this evening, it will be at least a series of three on the prologue to the book of Proverbs. But just as the prologue to John's gospel uh, is the key to the whole gospel, the gospel picks up the themes that are announced in the prologue like a great symphony picking up the themes that are announced at the beginning or uh, particularly, of course, in uh, an operatic score. And this prologue tells us that the book of Proverbs is a book that provides us with wisdom. And I don't think it's possible for us in the early decades of the 21st century to overemphasize how important this is. I have no doubt myself that Proverbs, which has always been one of the key books in the Old Testament, is a great key for believers in the 21st century to enable us to negotiate life in a fallen and ungodly world. And that's what it's written in order to do, to help believers to negotiate life in an ungodly world. And it does it, as uh, I hinted last time, in a wide variety of ways. Um, England, and I mean England, I mean the country down south, has provided the world with several of the greatest detectives in history. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, who was of course a great genius, but not himself a man uh, whose lifestyle is to be followed. Although he was Belgian, Hercule Poirot, who would announce himself modestly as the greatest detective in the world and has been superbly played, of course, 
by David Suchet. And perhaps the greatest of them all, G.K. Chesterton's detective, Father Brown. Father Brown solved crimes because he knew the sinfulness of his own heart. And uh, he has a great genius in doing that. And in one of the novels that G.K. Chesterton uh, wrote about Father Brown, The Oracle of the Dog, uh, Father Brown has this great insight. He says, the first effect of not believing in God is you lose your common sense. The first effect of not believing in God is you lose your common sense. That's a profoundly theological saying. Because, of course, when we stop believing in God, we inevitably stop believing in man as the image of God. And since Scripture teaches us that the most fundamental thing about us is that we are made as the image of God, it follows that when we deny the existence of God, which our society is systemically and systematically doing, in all areas of our life, uh, the result is not that we exalt humanity. The the result is that we destroy humanity. And the point that Chesterton was making is that you begin to see all kinds of extraordinary manifestations that we've lost our common sense. As David was stressing this morning, Once we have opened Pandora's box and all the stuff is released, the only mechanism left for us to, as it were, stabilize society is to create more and more and more laws that we know as Christians never transform the heart and give us the desire to live in a way that is worthy of honor and respect. And so ever since a number of months ago, I read one of the uh, columns in the Times of London saying how much better life has become. I've taken note of the headlines in the Times. And there has scarcely been a headline since that would lead me to believe that we are a nation of people who exude common sense. And there are so many manifestations of this. But the challenge of that for the believer in any age is so to live a life of godly common sense that it becomes evident to the people round about us that even if they despise what we believe, they understand that somehow or another we have cracked it. And we're able to live in a world that seems increasingly to be hostile to everything that we believe. And so we find this in so many different ways. I read in the Times, the very same Times this week, a group of intellectuals saying what we need to do is to teach four and five-year-olds about pornography. Why is this? Because we have let everything out of Pandora's box and we don't know how to put it back in. Uh, that what we need to do is to teach four- and five-year-olds about depression. Why? Because we see so many evidences that people are depressed and 
We know that drugs are not the solution. That's been another headline. So many youngsters getting drugs. But it's not the solution. If the problem were chemical, the solution would be chemical. But the problem is not chemical. And you catch this sense when your grandmother or your great-grandmother, in some of your cases, or maybe even your great-great-grandmother, would have said, is there no common sense left? And we have assumed, as we've often noticed, that uh, in our world that hurtles uh, towards the rejection of God, uh, back to the good old days before we had these Christian distinctives, does not seem to know enough about history to realize what was true before there were these Christian distinctives. There was paganism. There was confusion. And... uh, Here in a very pagan environment, we need to remember, God has given us the book of Proverbs to teach believers how to live, to give them wisdom, to give them, as I tried to say the last time in my abominable French, savoir-faire, to know how to negotiate life. And for our children and our young people, our students, our elderly, to know how to negotiate life. And the secret is growing in wisdom. And we saw last time in these verses that wisdom is a, it's a multifaceted jewel. Uh, it involves uh, insight. It involves prudence. It involves knowledge. It involves discretion. It involves learning. It involves understanding. It heaps up language to walk us round the constituent elements of wisdom. But he's saying these are, these are not elements that are isolatable from one another. If I get some learning and if I get some insight and all of these other things, these are simply ways of describing the single reality of knowing what God wants you to do. And one of the things he's saying in these early verses is there is a particular way of knowing how to be wise. And it's interesting, isn't it? Um, It's interesting how infrequently, it seems to me, Christians ask that question about what they're going to do in life, about decisions they're making. Is this wise. A decision you're going to make. The book of Proverbs is full of this. It's full of principles and illustrations that say, now, this is how you see the wise thing to do, and this is how you see what to avoid because it's so desperately unwise. And we'll see, if not this evening, at least, uh, God willing, the next time we come to Proverbs, if there is such a time, how it is that we gain that wisdom. But I want to say several other things about this book of Proverbs. Um, And the first is this, that a key to understanding Proverbs is to understand Proverbs is a covenant book. Proverbs is a covenant book. In the world of Old Testament scholarship, 
uh, people who are paid to study the Old Testament and who spend their lives reading from right to left Hebrew texts. To modern scholars, the book of Proverbs is a great puzzle for this reason. Many of them cannot understand why it's in the Bible. It's, what is it after all? It's, it's, it's moralism, isn't it? Isn't this something an unbeliever could teach their unbelieving family? That's why it's so important to remember the context in which the book of Proverbs is given, and actually why it's so significant that the book begins by telling us this is the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Why is it so significant that it was the king, the second king of Israel, who compiled the book of Proverbs and apparently wrote many of them himself. Well, for this reason, what the book of Proverbs does is to gather the covenant community who have received the law of God. Just 10 principles. It's extraordinary. I mean, those of you who are my age, you learned them by the time you were seven. You knew them off by heart. Uh, even if you'd never gone to church, you probably knew them off by heart. Ten simple principles to govern the whole of life. The law of God. A reflection of what he made us to be, but written for people who were sinners. Which is why there are so many don't do this and don't do that to guard us. And you know, one of the responsibilities of the kings of Israel were told about this in the book of Deuteronomy. He was told to write out the law himself. And so the first task of King Solomon was to sit down at his desk and get whatever primitive writing implement was available to him and to demonstrate to the people that he believed in the blessing of the law of God, and he was to write out the whole book of the law himself in his own hand. It was an exercise in learning. It was a discipline to help him to see that what was most significant in his reign was that he was subordinated to God's will, and he would seek to do everything possible to promote God's will, God's law, among God's people. And if he was to do that as king, then Solomon understood, because uh, he wasn't in the situation of David at the beginning of his reign, fighting for his existence, fighting for his kingship, fighting for Jerusalem, making preparations for the ark to come. It was his responsibility, in a sense, if I can call the Ten Commandments the Ten Fingers of God's will, to fill in the gaps. To say, now here are the principles, and I've written them out for myself, but the question you need to be asking is, how do these principles work out in actual life? 
And I say this is the responsibility of the covenant king for his covenant people who have been given the law of God to help them to live as the image bearers of God, in the likeness of God, to give testimony to God so that they might shine as lights in the darkness. And of course, that's one of the big differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament, isn't it? The Old Testament's vision of evangelism is not for God's people to be going to the ends of the earth, but for the ends of the earth to be seeing the presence of God among them and coming to them. It's a very striking difference. God's old covenant community were not sent out into all the countries of the world in order to bring people to Yahweh. They were set in one small country so to live in such a radically distinctive way that the nations would assemble to the mountain of the Lord. That's the great Old Testament picture of what God's people were meant to be in their impact upon the world around them. And so Solomon is writing these proverbs to help them negotiate life in a very ungodly, in a very pagan world uh, by filling in the, the gaps, the questions we ask. So, we're not to commit adultery. Uh, What lies behind, what positively lies behind that? And what does it mean for us to live this out? And you remember the whole way in which God's covenant works among his people. God pledges himself to his people. And then he says, now respond in faith and you will receive blessing and enter into life. Respond in unbelief and you will enter into judgment, and you will taste death. And if you know the book of Proverbs, you'll realize that that that's like the substructure of the way in which all of these Proverbs operate. God has set before us in his covenant the way of life and the way of death. And there are these principles given to us in the Ten Commandments, but now the the book of Proverbs takes these principles and, and seems to run with them into every area of life to say to us, now, do you see that this is the way of life? And you need to see that to go that way is actually to, it's to walk into a death trap. And so the very language of God's covenant is, as it were, the substructure of everything that's said in the book of Proverbs. Another way of putting it might be this, that the Ten Commandments are the the architects redesigning of our lives now that our lives have fallen. God created us to be his image bearers, Genesis 1 and 2. But then we fell and we rebelled and everything is now disordered and we're a sinful people. And these particular people are a a redeemed sinful people. They're a particular nation. And so God shapes his word to such a people who are sinners, who have an instinct to go wrong. 
That's why there are so many negatives in the commandments. Not because God is negative any more than when uh, those of us who are fathers had little boys who liked to play with screwdrivers. We said, whatever you do with that screwdriver, do not put it into any one of these three holes that you see in the wall. We didn't say, now, now, dear John, let me sit down for six hours. But I want to explain to you how electricity works. Because he wouldn't have been capable. I wouldn't have been capable of explaining it, but he wouldn't have been capable of understanding it. And when God's people are, are spiritually immature, then, of course, the dominant note in order to secure them as a different people in this land is to, is to teach them with negatives. Although, as I think we should see, uh, there is a great positive in the midst of it all that is so helpful for us to understand. So, so this, is an, this is a book full of illustrations of how it is that God's law works out. It, in a way, you could say, now, the Ten Commandments are the architect's drawings. The Proverbs is, is like a book that, that uh, the foreman has written to tell you how it all works out when you're on the building site. And that's the reason it's so wonderful for us, uh, because it's a, it's a covenant book about a covenant relationship and how it works out, and it's composed by Solomon for God's covenant people. And of course, because this covenant to which the people belong goes back to the Exodus and then beyond that back to Abraham, and then beyond that back to Genesis 3.15, the book of Proverbs is also a covenant manual for people in a conflict situation. Remember what Genesis 3.15 promises, that until Christ comes, there will be a perpetual war of the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman seeking to destroy the people of God. And that's what this book is about. It, it, it is really saying to people at every age and stage, never forget that you live in enemy-occupied territory. And there is a danger everywhere you go that you may step on a hidden mine because you didn't have the wisdom to see how to avoid it. So this is really a book for believers and a book about our covenant life together. And it teaches us, I think it's so interesting that Jesus used this language, that we need to be wise as serpents. Now, what serpent do most of us know about best in the Bible? It's the one in Genesis 3, isn't it? And we're told he was shrewd. And Jesus is saying, you need to be wiser than serpents in this world. And you can only do that when you understand that this is, uh, this is not a book of worldly wisdom, but this is a book given to God's covenant people to help them to negotiate life in a fallen world. And we need to immerse ourselves in it. 
Second thing I want to say this evening is that Proverbs is not only a covenant book, it's a family book. And you only need to read the first eight chapters to realize that. The first chapters of the book of Proverbs have have like two interludes in which wisdom stands up and speaks. But everywhere else, it's a father who stands up and speaks to his son. Now, it wouldn't be difficult, as it were, for a mother to say, I'm going to use this book for you, my daughter. Uh, But it's a family book. It's a covenant book. And it's a book for the covenant family. And again, in our own families, those of us who bring up children, unless we realize that context, then all we'll do is teach children moralism in reading through the book of Proverbs. But this is a book particularly for a father who understands that he is the covenant head and father of this little family and his chief responsibility is to train his children for glory and for God. And so the book begins with a a series of um, talks. And they all begin more or less in the same way. My son, listen to this. My son, listen to this. And then something marvelous happens in, in the rest of the book. I don't mean to be irreverent in saying this, but much of the rest of the book is full of cartoons. Some of them are cartoon strips. It's like Peanuts. Why is is Peanuts so great? Peanuts is so great because it gives you a, a picture of this other world that you're not part of at all. You know, you some of you may be part of it, or your your children may have been part of it. But we're, we're, we're looking in on this world, and it's, everything in this world is kind of slightly exaggerated. And then just in a, in a few quick snapshots, it's as though the truth about humanity has been revealed. And that's what Proverbs is. That's why you get these like super graphic pictures of situations. In some ways, they're like the parables of Jesus. They're super graphic situations. A man owes endless millions to one man, and that man forgives his debt, and then he goes to a man who owes him 20 pounds, and he virtually strangles him and tells him that uh, he's going to do nothing to have mercy on him. And, And you see yourself in the situation. And the book of Proverbs is... It's like that. In that sense, you, you need to get it. David was saying this morning, some people get this and other people don't get it. You need to get this. You need to see the pictures. It appeals to your imagination. And it appeals to your imagination in order to grasp your affections. And the reason it does that is because the appeal of the world, first and foremost, is to your affections. And these great pictures show us God's truth, God's wisdom, God's way, in such a way that it excites our affections. Don't, 
doesn't peanuts do that to you unless you're kind of, unless you have no sense of humor? I've met, I don't think I've ever met anyone who says, I don't understand peanuts. I don't like peanuts. And if you think I'm talking about peanuts, you're not getting it. You see? Now, what does it do? It does, it does, it, it shows you a picture that your mind grasps, but it shows you that picture in such a way that it moves through your understanding to your affections and it, it, it draws you out. And you say, how stupid they are. And then you say, oh, how stupid I am. That's how it is. So Proverbs, my friends, is not a chocolate bar machine saying, put your pound coin in and you get the bar out. It's not saying this world is like a kind of clockwork orange where as long as you do the right things, there will always be the results you want. And so as Chesterton actually says elsewhere, the great thing about God's truth is it seems to go slightly twisted just exactly where things go slightly twisted. But it's for the family, you see. Um... Jesus would have known the book of Proverbs off by heart. If Joseph lived long enough, they would have, this is what they would have talked about on their way home from synagogue. It is, you know, I think I could almost say rather daringly, forget about all the child-rearing manuals you've got at home if you're a young parent and immerse yourself in the book of Proverbs and it will do you more good. Because many of those books don't even point you to the book of Proverbs. It's a family book. It's a father who understands, as in his earlier days Solomon understood, my authority in my own home is not because I'm bigger or smarter or richer or more successful or stronger but exclusively because I realize I am in covenant with the Lord and he has given me this responsibility for my children. And among the other blessings that that should bring to us is that it then makes it possible for a father who has messed up and which father does not on occasion mess up to go to his son or daughter and say, I apologize. I've really messed up. I've failed the Lord. And I failed you. Why do fathers not do that? Because they're dead scared of their children. But you see, when the family is a covenant family, it's an entirely different environment altogether, isn't it? Don't you see in this world that most parents are dead scared of losing their children? And here this book of Proverbs is giving us this wonderful family book. So it's a covenant book, it's a family book. And then thirdly, and I'll finish with this tonight, although there's more, of course. (laughs) Proverbs is a very practical book. So let me just go for a minute beyond prolegomena, as they say, the the things that we say first of all, to to just pick up two ways, two uh, particular themes that Proverbs operates with, just to give us a little taste of this. So there's a commandment in Scripture that we don't commit adultery. 
That's there for people who have a tendency to commit adultery, okay? But behind it, as for example, the catechism show, as Jesus shows, behind it is the fact marriage is such a great gift from God that it needs to be treated as a holy relationship and nothing must ever mar it. You wonder why things are going wrong in the world today when we've, lo- we've lost that, we've demeaned marriage. You, you wonder why it is that marriage is more and more demeaned. It's because it's been demeaned so long in our society. And adultery has been treated as an incidental thing. A personal choice, even a personal right. So there is this great creation ordinance of a man and a woman being bound together. That's the reason why we're given a very beautiful proverb in chapter 18, verse 22. Don't look up these proverbs because I'm going to go through them too quickly. It's this. I remember thinking this was a good proverb. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. That's something, isn't it? Finding a wife is a good thing. And it is a superlative blessing from the Lord. Now, that's the reason why we get these other proverbs. Now, this is, this is can I put it this way? This is, a, this is a book for fathers and their sons in a particular culture. But, of course, it applies in the reverse direction. So, son, marriage is a great and good thing wonderful thing. But you need to be wise. You cannot afford to marry just any woman. Now, one of the amazing things to me is that God in His common grace seems to give people who are relatively horrible, actually, fairly stable marriages. Maybe you could say they were made for each other, but it is a wonder. But you see, we shouldn't go into marriage with our eyes closed. And we need to see beyond the facade. Now, here's a great book for our, young, for our young girls, isn't it? In thinking about a husband. In thinking about themselves. What are they blasted with today? It's how you look. And how these beautiful people look. And they're all over the papers, these beautiful people. They swear like troopers. They bounce from one relationship to another, but there is this mirage over them. This is what we this is what we should be, girls. And it's a damnable lie. It's from the pit. And Solomon, who alas failed in this, had wisdom. Here's fourteen one. The wisest of women builds her house. Here's twelve four. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in the bones. So that's a question, isn't it? She, she is a looker. But is there anything that comes out of her mouth that will bring shame? Then let me not be deceived by the looks. Let me listen to the heart. Here's another. A foolish son is ruined to his father. Well, that's, that's okay. Now, remember, this is a father speaking to his son about potential wife. So, do not think of this as misogynistic. 
A wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. So, you've met husbands who married this woman. You've met, you've met wives who married this man. Quarreling? Sister, it's an incidental thing. And here's another one. Similarly, better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Has it, has it never really struck you how, as a minister, this has struck me, thank God it has only happened, I think, on a couple of occasions that a man and a woman who stood in front of me utterly obsessed with one another, no man and woman had ever loved so, so much as they have. And in five years' time, they cannot actually stand being in the same geographical space. So don't get upset at what Solomon is saying. He's just saying, look, before you enter into this relationship that is so blessed of God, keep your eye open for telltale signs that when they have the opportunity to grow, will destroy your soul and become like rottenness in your bones. Here's another one, 27, 15, and 16, a continual dripping on a rainy day in a quarrelsome wife or alike. Same true for a quarrelsome husband. But listen to how this proverb ends. To restrain her is to restrain wind or to grasp oil in the right hand. You see what he's saying? It actually can't be done. You know how, let me put it from the other point of view, you know, many women have got married and say, when I'm married, when I marry him, he'll change. When I marry him, he'll change. He'll not change. He'll just grow. Yes, God may change him. But what God and his sovereignty may do is none of your business whatsoever. Your business is to be wise. And no matter what bursts out in your soul to have the wisdom to see that this is a relationship that will only do harm and not good. And then thank God after all this, the marvelous way in which the book of Proverbs ends about the excellent wife who is far more precious than jewels. But you see, it's just like the New Testament. There's always a yes but if there's going to be a yes in a fallen and sinful world, we need to understand what the no-no's are. And you see, we might say, well, how do I recognize this? And that's the answer of this book. You need to, you need to have wisdom. There, there isn't, there's no place in the Bible, my wife's name is Dorothy, there's no place in the Bible that tells me Sinclair should marry Dorothy. So what am I left with? I'm left with wisdom. I'm left with wisdom. Now let me turn to a completely different pair of Proverbs and then with this we'll finish. And it's worth finishing on tonight because they're really so interesting. In, uh, they're not the most famous Proverbs, but they are the most interesting Proverbs. In Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest to be wise in his own eyes. Now, you need to read that twice, don't you? 
Yes, it said, answer not a fool. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. But answer a fool according to his folly, lest to be wise in his own eyes. What on earth is he saying? Well, you can understand what he's saying. Answer not a fool according to his folly. The fool, incidentally, is not the person who lacks intelligence, but the person who lacks faith in God. The kind of person who will abuse. He will abuse God's law and he will abuse you because you love God's law and he's a fool. So what's, what's he saying? He is saying many of us will, an instinct, will have an instinct of tit for tat. Our, he speaks, she speaks, and the first thing I want to do is to speak. But I recognize if I speak, I'll be demonstrating the same kind of folly. You see, I'll be speaking the same kind of language. And you see many Christian people falling into this trap. And it's a great lesson to learn. Jesus met plenty of fools. But he never answered them according to their folly. But then he is the great exemplar of answering a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. What does he mean by that? He means by that that the fool, and you see much of this, the way in which the fool of this world bombards Christians, intimidates Christians, and do you notice what, you notice what the, the proverb is saying here? I almost called it a parable. It's essentially saying, always remember the person that you're answering and see beyond the question he's asking. You see what I mean? In, in today's world, there will be people who ask us in situations in which they may think they can destroy their careers, they will ask us very direct questions, and we'll have an instinct to give, us very, give them very direct answers. Now, if they ask us for the reason for the hope that is in us, we have a gospel command to answer that question, but we don't have a responsibility to answer everybody's questions. How do I know that? Because I've read the gospels. A surprising number of times Jesus refused to answer fools according to their folly, but answered the fool rather than answer the question. And uh, you know how he did it. I've said from this position often enough, why does a rabbi always answer a question with a question? Why not? That's something we need to learn from Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Why would you ask that question? Because you were a fool and you wanted to trip Jesus up. So Jesus says, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes. Does he? He says, anybody got, any, anybody got a, a pound coin around here? Whose picture's on it? Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And then he adds, and to God, the things that are God's. Whose image is here? You see? 
He answers the fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. There's a, there's, Luke 20 has several of these. There's the brilliant one that you all know. Uh, excuse me, what's the great commandment? Oh, love God, love your neighbor. So good. Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? A liar. A liar. Stood up, wanted to trick Jesus. Who's my neighbor? Have you ever noticed that Jesus doesn't answer that question in the parable of the Good Samaritan? He tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, and then he asks that man his own question. Which man in my story proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? Well, Jesus had got him, hadn't he? There was one obvious. There was no other. You couldn't say the priest. You couldn't say the Levite. He said it was the Samaritan, the Samaritan of all things. And you see what he did? Pulled the ground from underneath him and made this bigoted Jewish man who wanted to love neighbors like himself, but not these wretched Samaritans and others. He made him say the word Samaritan. And Jesus, you cannot, you know, Chesterton, you know, I've not been reading Chesterton, Chesterton said, you know, there's no evidence of the Gospels Jesus ever smiled, and he didn't think that Jesus ever did smile. I think if Jesus wasn't smiling at that point, the guys in the crowd were giving each other high fives. <laughs> and then this question, where did you get your authority? That's a stunning question. You know, there are some evangelicals who, if they, actually, if they actually thought about it, would realize Jesus is such a disappointment because he didn't speak to them about his deity. He didn't tell them the prologue to John's gospel. What did he tell them? He didn't tell them anything. He asked them a question. Where did John get his authority from? And they wouldn't answer the question. And so Jesus gave them a wee smile and said, well, why should I answer your question? Now, you see what Jesus is doing. Jesus is listening to the question, but he's also hearing the questioner. He's hearing the questioner, and he learns to respond to the questioner with questions of his own. And my friends, I think there are many situations in which we all need to learn to do that. When people ask us questions and we've enough wisdom to see the only reason this person's asking me this question is because he feels I am under obligation as a Christian to answer his question and he or she wants to trap me. The simplest thing in the world is to say, what do you think about that? Well, I asked you first. Don't be so childish. I'm interested in what you think about that. And then they'll tell you what they think about it. And then you'll say to them, on what basis do you say that? Well, what's, your, what's your foundation for this? Wasn't David's illustration, time's gone, wasn't his illustration this morning very telling? Everybody should get to heaven but you put people down at the Nuremberg trials. You see the horrors of the Holocaust. 
you want them pardoned too? We, we should all be able to do what we want. Well, where do you draw the line? Because you draw the line. But on what basis do you draw the line? And you see, we need to, we need to probe a little. Not to be on the defensive, but to probe. And you know, our fathers in Scotland were able to do that to an extraordinary degree for a very simple reason. Actually, the reason was they'd learned the catechism and it taught them how to think, which is what the catechism does. It gives you information, but teaches you how to think, teaches you how to move from first principles to second principles. So the genius of the people who wrote catechisms was they knew how to think. And the truth of the matter is, it's, it's no part of our educational system today to teach people how to think. But the scriptures teach people how to think. And the book of Proverbs teaches us to think. And uh, once we've begun to think, then there will really be no situation that is beyond our mettle to be able to handle in a way that is consistent with God's purposes, that brings God's glory. And yes, at times may make everything go wrong in our lives, but it can never make the one thing that really matters go wrong, and that is that we're in covenant with God. Well, you've been very patient on this summer evening, and uh, we're in a series on the prologue to the book of Proverbs, so let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and goodness to us in Jesus Christ. And especially tonight, we remember that he is your wisdom and that you've shown us in him, if we could only get to know him better and be more like him, we would serve you so much better in this world. And we pray that you would help us to do that. We thank you for your word and for your grace in Jesus' name. Our last item of praise is uh, another old hymn, Isaac Watts, um, Oh That the Lord Would Guide My Ways. Let it be a prayer in response to what we've been learning. So we'll stand to sing.
May the Lord send you help from his sanctuary and grant you support from on high. May grace and peace be to you from the God who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Amen.